Welcome to Southern Futures. I'm your host, Melody Hunter-Pillion, with the Center for the Study of the American South. In this episode, we continue our chat with Tracy Dion, UNC alumna and author of the New York Times bestselling novel, Legend Born. If you haven't heard the first part of this two-part episode, go back and give it a listen. Tracy has been a real treat to speak with, and I know you're going to love what she has to say about putting a modern and Southern twist on an Arthurian legend. Plus, the setting for the novel is the UNC campus and locations you'll recognize around Chapel Hill. As we get back into the conversation and the mood of this fantasy novel, let's listen to an excerpt from Legend Born, read by our associate producer and current UNC student, Ivana Devine. The sky is a bright Carolina blue overhead and the old Chapel Hill Cemetery Part green lawn, part wooded preserve, is probably the most beautiful graveyard ever. It feels like a hidden park, a respite away from the throngs of students bent over their phones on their way to class, professors chatting on the way to the campus coffee shop. Tracy, you bring local history sharply into view with the use of the old Chapel Hill Cemetery, which as a public historian, I can really appreciate that you're using this opportunity to reveal some lesser known history. But this is also an important scene for action in your novel, Legend Born. Why the old Chapel Hill Cemetery? One reason I I had to include it just as as a former student at UNC is just, at least for me, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was there, The cemetery was a place you walked through to get from one place to another. It was a place you could gather and, you know, there's a gazebo, at least there was, I hope it's still there. Is a gazebo still there? Um, There's a gazebo where you could, you could meet friends for a little lunch or, you know, it's not far from the pit in the union. I remember we'd meet up and we were going to some party in some dorm somewhere and that would be a good place for people to meet in this sort of center-ish of campus. So to me, it you know, my first few years at UNC, it was a community space in a way. Like we found ways to use it. It wasn't necessarily, for me, like a holy ground space or a place where I needed to be particularly subdued. It felt like a place where I could go and be joyful or I could go and be on my phone or I could whatever. But, you know, as I got older and distanced myself from the actual campus walking experience and thinking about the map and thinking about what it was and knowing that other universities don't all have cemeteries so close, I started doing more reading about it. And I heard about the study that was done several years ago by, I think it was Chapel Hill Preservation Society or something like that, um, to uncover all of the unmarked graves of primarily African-American people, workers, um, enslaved folks, servants. And I, I reached out to Dr. Hillary Green, who's a, a history graduate at, at, from UNC as well, and is does these amazing sort of alternative walking tours about, you know, sort of hidden histories um, around the slave trade in some of these southern schools. I started talking to her about it, and I just realized that I realized that this space, there are a lot of different perspectives on it, and the perspective that you would not get and that I did not get walking around. Um, was exactly how it echoed systems of oppression today, that you're literally walking on ground that is mirroring, you know, issues of segregation. And except in this case, it's it's tracking over like 200 years, right? So you can track even through who was buried when, where, where, you know, how UNC and the government and the town of Chapel Hill were really treating certain types of people over time. And now there's more, there's markers. I mean, the landscape is even changing because of what we've learned. 
that there are people who've tried to make efforts to make sure we don't step on certain places. But, you know, the football game parking story from the 80s, that's real. It was really important for me to put that in because it's so jarring. And I've had readers reach out to me and say, did that really happen? I'm like, yes, yes, and yes, it did. Um, so it was important for me because I wanted, because it was a really convenient sort of locus center to show the wide stretch of how people of color and particularly black people have been treated on this campus over time. You were able to bring together past, present, and future looking ahead by introducing different characters and again in your specific settings like the cemetery, campus buildings, monuments. Why is this thread of time and history important in this overall message or I should say narrative for Legend Born? I mean, I'm the type of person who I, I feel very strongly that, you know, history just sort of walks around with us. We're not, you know, we are in history now as a stream. I don't think we, we can talk about the present and the future, but like we're all connected to history. We're creating it as we speak. And that it it still has material effects on people today. So it was really important for me to be able to talk about that. But also Carolina is a space if anyone's listening who hasn't been there, please go in the spring if it's safe to do so. But that campus, you're walking through history as you walk around. And as when you're talking about narratives, the narrative around the institution of Carolina will not let you forget that, right? Like how often are we hearing about oldest public school, Hinton James, you know, what, you know, which governor slash president slash whatever used to go here, you know, um, the oldest old, you know, die fi like you're, you're sort of in, you know, immersed as soon as you are a student here with all of this, the weight of history that is, that is supporting this institution, how long it is, what it means to the state and to the country even because Carolina, I mean, old East, it's the, the oldest public residential building. It's just on campus and it's still in use, you know? So I feel like that history is alive is very much part of the Carolina sort of ethos or mythos even. So it was important for me to bring that forward and say, okay, but some histories aren't. And let's, let's, if we're going to, like, if that's my wish to Carolina, if I could walk up to the entire institution as a physical thing and just walk up and be like, okay, but say it all though. Like, it's not just Hinton James. It's not just oldies. It's all of it. There's a lot of history here that you have the resources to elevate, but we don't. I don't cry for my mother's death or for myself. I cry because these strangers in the hospital, the nurse, the doctor, the police officer, don't know my mother, and yet they were closest to her when she died. And when your people die, you have to listen to strangers speak your nightmare into existence. I listen to these people I don't know use the past tense about my mother, the person who brought me into this world and created my present. They are past tensing my heart, my whole beating, bleeding, torn heart right in front of me. It is a violation. Tracy, death is a theme in your novel. Your characters, they really allow us to explore grief and its relation to memory. Uh, if you could explain the strong connection that you've built between memory and grief and your use of sensory cues to really bring that connection out. Yeah, I think a lot of that actually comes from just personal experience. My personal experience of grief was not dissimilar to the journey that Bree is on in terms of the emotional internal arc. 
And in terms of, you know, working with traumatic grief, complex grief um, that wasn't diagnosed till later for me and even, you know, forms of PTSD. So all of that is in there. In my experience, what's difficult about that and what I think people don't often talk about with grief is how quickly grief itself, the sort of whoosh wave of it can be triggered through senses. It's just, you know, the way that I think our society talks about grief, it just feels like people are sad for a while or something, but it's so many things. It's so many complicated layers of emotions and even really good things become good in a different way. You know, I remember thinking like this glass of wine is really good. It was like six bucks. It wasn't really good, but like, like the idea of, of it, the flavor that, you know, even a positive thing when you're sad like that, it just feels like my body was more aware of it. A really good laugh felt different you know, when I was coming out of grief than it would have before I would have taken it for granted. So I think it's really important to, to, to highlight that experience. That was another one of my missions was just so that that type of grief, which is actually extremely common, um, gets a little airtime. You know, I remember talking to a friend who said she lost her father and she was fine for, you know, once sort of the acute situation resolved itself and she uh, processed it, she was okay. And then she went to a grocery store and saw like, one brand of cereal that he used to have and just the idea of it and the smell of it just took her straight back and she felt like she had gone back to to day one you know and that's that's a really it's a hard way to live I think when you don't know that other people are feeling that way too. I think it is your ability to tap into what grief is or the experience of that that's so authentic that makes this book this novel really authentic regardless of genre, right? It connects uh, with the reader in this way. How has this success been for you? I mean, how are you sort of taking it? Has it become like a huge surprise or what has this been like for you to experience this type of success with, with this book? It's been, like I said, a wild ride. I, you dream and you hope that people will sort of pick up what you're putting down as an artist, no matter what the medium, you know, like, I hope they get what I'm trying to do here is this sort of like vibe that you get at, that we all have at some point in a project. Um, and you can't control that. And so when people have come back to me, what I found most fascinating is that by and large, the people who are coming back to say something positive are picking out the things of the book that I also love the most. And so that probably has been the most interesting. And whether that's critical, you know, sort of critical reviews or readers, middle schoolers, parents, librarians like I've just had people come back and just say like it's you know I love this I love this love this and then the the thing that unifies everyone is Brie they're just like I love Brie I would go to war for her I would you know like like I would follow her <laughs> you know if, if I ever needed to, to go to battle I would I would work with her like all this sort of sense of allegiance and, and support and love for uh, this character who feels very personal um, that's really been the most intense thing other than that there's just you know, you can't, I don't think you can, you can plan for stuff like last year, like 2020. I think my book would have done um, well in, in any other circumstance, but there's something really intense about last year and the conversations people were having and the places people wanted to go. There's i I've heard people say, and I agree that there's people want to escape right now, but they also don't like they want escapism, but they also need to be able to come back to reality because we can't escape it. So they, they really, they need to have one hand or one foot in both worlds. And I love that Legendborn was there for people who needed that. They wanted to have substantive, real 
sort of like challenges to think about, but also be able to escape and have fun. And the book does both. So I, I don't know. It's just I'm trying to take it in stride. I'm trying to also remind myself that it, you know, this book is a little bit like me scooping my heart out <laughs> onto the page and figuring out how to sustain that in a career. You know, like, I don't know if I can do that every book. I don't know that I should, but I also don't know how not to at this point. So that's probably my biggest challenge personally. Well, it seems like the timing was just right for the book. And certainly I think folks want to see more of Brie for sure. Yeah. Yes. Well, they're, well, book two is underway, so they will be getting more Brie. Any messages for the folks in Chapel Hill? You know, just take heart. I, I was down on Franklin Street uh, last year and I saw how many businesses were not there. And just like I felt, I felt for the community, like some of the staples that have been there for a long time um, or not. And just take heart. Chapel Hill will still be there on the other side for sure. Come back stronger. Tracy, we do like to wrap up each episode by asking our guests how they reimagine the South, because this is about Southern futures. You beat us to the punch because you've already reimagined the South in this novel in the most unique way. So instead, I'm going to ask you, why should writers, artists, really all of us, reimagine the South, what it couldn't be? I mean, I feel like my answer is completely driven by the runoff elections that we had in January of 2021 and what people saw was possible in Georgia and what Stacey Abrams proved to be possible and Stacey Abrams and other organizers. I think that the South has such levels of complexity and what has been exported from the South in terms of imagery and talent and stories and culture can very easily get funneled into certain directions that are politically useful for people. And I find that there's so much more than that. And, and that the South has its own mythology. And this is a mytho- mythology that's getting challenged right now in a lot of spaces in the last year or two with other monuments and other discussions about who it is we, we elevate and talk about building renamings. I mean, all of these things are the South actively reimagining itself and, and looking back at its narrative and myth and saying, is that really the myth that we that represents what happened and also who we are now? So, yeah, I feel like that's my that's my answer is that, you know, we need to reimagine it because the South never was portrayed, I think, with the layer of complexity that we are now seeing it has always had. Tracy Dion, we want to thank you for both spending time with us today and for sharing this wonderful novel, which You're building Southern Futures yourself. Your young adult fantasy novel, again, is Legend Born. That's written by Tracy Dion and published by Simon & Schuster. Enjoy the read, folks, and join us for our next episode of Southern Futures. For executive producer, Dr. Melinda Maynard-Lowry, producer and sound editor, Mark Meyer, and associate producers, Jackie Sizing and Ivana Devine, I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion. Southern Futures is a podcast powered by the Southern Futures Initiative, a collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Southern Futures, reimagine the American South.